I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. This is Episode 4, The Dying Earth. And with me, is, as always, is my roguish co-host, the lovely <laughs> Jeff Goad. Hello, everybody. And Jeff, we have a very special guest today. Yes, we do, Hoy. Today with us, we are very excited to have Gavin Norman, author of The Complete Vivimancer and Theorems and Thaumaturgy. Hello, Gavin. Hi there. We know that you're working on some other projects as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Dolmenwood and Wormskin? Yeah, I mean, uh, Dolmenwood is one of the big projects I'm working on at the moment. I guess I've got yeah several irons in the fire usually. Um, but yeah, Dolmenwood is one of the big ones. It's a, it's a project I'm doing with Greg Gorgon Milk since a few years. Um, and it's kind of a fairy tale forest setting. Um, so we kind of, we're kind of trying to cut back through some of the like trad D&D stuff that's built up um, and go back to some of the like fairy tale roots of D&D. Um, so in a way, even like pre-Appendix N, you could say, um, but also with a kind of modern like psychedelic twist to it. So we're, we're publishing that gradually in a zine called Wormskin. So are you Very looking cool. at sort of the Grimm's fairy tales, like sort of the 19th century vibe, or even older to sort of like the the, the primal, more primal fairy tale types? Yeah, setting? I kind of, I mean, kind of a mixture of both. There's a lot of different influences in in Dolmenwood. I mean, there's even even some influence from like 19th century kind of gothic stuff as well. So it's, it's a bit of a mishmash, but kind of deliberately trying to avoid the tropes of D and D and Tolkien, you know. Sure. Uh, so let me bring it back a moment and uh, ask you what your actual history is with um, Dungeons and Dragons or role-playing games and Appendix N and and what has brought you to the point where you are in the hobby today. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I started playing D&D when I was eight in the early 80s. Uh, got the classic uh, Mensa red box for Christmas one year and, yeah, kind of never looked back basically from that moment. I guess my slightly before that, like a year or so before that, I got into fighting fantasy, you know, the game books. Sure, sure. The um, Steve Jackson, is that right? Or the British Steve Jackson, right? Or is that... Um... Yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, I, I was just at the right, in the right place at the right time, you know, early 80s, those books were just coming out. I was the perfect age, you know, seven, eight, and kind of saw these like mystical looking books in a bookshop and <laughs> yeah like really was getting them as they were coming out so that was my kind of introduction to fantasy really and then yeah stuff like the hobbit lord of the rings reading as a kid to be honest actually much of the appendix end stuff in D, i'm not actually that well versed in i mean i've read a bit of the conan stuff a bit of fritz Leiber, jack vance obviously but it seems in your work, you definitely have the affinity for Jack Vance and uh, specifically maybe the complete Vivimancer in that regard. Yeah, I mean, that that was incredibly inspiring for me when I read the uh, Dying Earth books, especially. Yeah. yeah, because one of the things that I'd like uh, to, to add to this conversation is that I'm currently in a BX game and I am playing a Vivimancer. And when Hoy and I started doing this podcast and we started we got to our Dying Earth episode... 
I, I felt like I needed to invite you on because like I'm I'm playing a Vivamancer and it is so clearly Turgeon of Mir. And we'll talk more about Turgeon of Mir <laughs> yeah. when we get to the library. Yeah. But like just like the, the vats of life and creating mm. these beings out of these like tubs of goo yeah. just felt very, very Vancian. Sure. Uh, it's amazing you're playing one. Super cool. <laughs> and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, there you go. And we actually have to talk about how you're a, a, a total nudist Viv- Vivimancer. <laughs> That's true. I am, yeah, because uh, one of the Vivimancer spells is transparency, which works like invisibility, except you, um, it just turns your skin and your muscles and your organs transparent, but your equipment is still uh, very much uh, visible. Your clothes are visible. But one of the things that's nice about it is you don't suddenly become visible when you attack or cast yeah. a spell. Yeah. So because of that my my vivimancer is walking around just like in a light shawl most of the time which she very quickly removes to turn transparent constantly <laughs> and almost never has any equipment on her and it has been very freeing to play a dungeons and dragons <laughs> character who has absolutely no weapon uh, no gear right, yeah. and is basically a nudist right, yes <laughs> yeah I, actually exactly yeah. the same happened in my campaign where we had a vivimancer <laughs> no equipment light shawl basically a nudist (laughs) (laughs) now uh also just on sort of branching out i understand that you're also doing uh sort of in the background a complete uh complete illusionist uh book at one point or if if, i don't know that's that's one of the kind of things going on in the background um i i tend to have a lot of projects going on and then do kind of spurts of activity on them so this this is one that earlier this year i had this massive spurt got it like 75 percent finished and since then, it's been kind of lingering. So, yeah, def- definitely at some point, it's like poised to be right. finished off. <laughs> right. Just got to feel it there. So uh, do we want to talk a little bit about The Dying Earth and Jack Vance and then uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and some so stories? Jack Vance's The Dying Earth came out in 1950. And the edition that I'm reading um, from is the second Lancer printing from 1969. Right. It has this Ed Ermschwiller cover, uh, which you can uh, I'm showing to Gavin ah, right here. That's exactly uh, the same cover as I've got. Yeah. Oh, there you oh go. perfect, perfect. Yeah. yeah. And I have you figured out what this is an illustration of from the story? I was really wondering. I was looking at it, but I I couldn't really think. I mean, the only thing I could think was that it's maybe some weird kind of misconception of life being spawned in a vat or something. (laughs) That's what I was thinking too. But then when I was re-skimming the stories Mm, today, I figured it out uh, because... I think I know which one it is. Yeah, what is it? Uh, Gialis Fair, right? Right at the end? No, no. it's not. This is Ulandor. Okay. This is Ulandor when he is... uh, When he has finally come up against Rogel Domindomfors. Okay. And uh, and he goes up against the the there's like the, a big like glass container uh-huh. that's holding like the essence of Rogel Dom and Domfors, and he throws his sword at it to destroy it because ah, it's now uh, destroying uh, the city yeah. right, right before they hop in their flying car and right. zip uh, away. I'm, I'm yeah. actually um, surprised, actually going back and looking at some of the covers and realizing that the authors or the art directors really, I mean, the artists or the art directors really did actually read the stories. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. they did, the interpretation might not be what we think of, but we come to that mm. point and say, oh, no, he really did read the story. Mm. You know, Frazetta really did read the Conan stories in order to do those covers. And this is clearly that he did read or was given a scene and description mm. of that scene. Because you don't always see that nowadays, do you, I think, like... A lot of books you'll see the cover and it's like, well, how's that related to the content? Right. A lot of times it's a sort of Photoshoppy kind of pose or something like that. Uh, actually, it reminds me, how did you yeah, um, uh, 
picked the artists for uh, for uh, specifically Complete Vivimancer, which has got a great sort of lurid, uh, sort of Aubrey Beardsley looking kind of cover. Yeah, the the interesting thing about that is the artist who drew that isn't a gamer, so oh. she's just into kind of weird like gothic kind of horror sort of stuff. And I, f- I found her online, and uh, her art seemed to really fit the vibe. So just That's contacted cool. her and said, "Oh, hey, I've got this like weird D and D book. Have you ever heard of?" role-playing or anything she was like oh, no it sounds cool though <laughs> <laughs> and actually i just found the uh the paragraph that it's that that the cover is of mm-hmm. with a single motion he drew his sword and hurled it point first into the translucent cylinder of jelly tra- transfixed the brain skewered it on a haft of steel there you go that's it <laughs> definitely like slime and, and bio- biological stuff so it's terrific and <laughs> So, um, so we have in this uh, Dying Earth, we have six stories, and Gavin, you had said that you had just reread the first four yeah, uh, in the last week. Jeff, do you want to summarize, or Gavin, do you want to summarize a couple of the stories? Sure, but how about real quick, before we do that, why don't we have our, our Hygaxian word of the day real quick, and then we'll just go in and just talk right. about the book from, <laughs> for the go. rest of the episode. Hygaxian. Sure. Yeah. Our Hygaxian word right. of the day. That's, that's our new word, Hygaxian. <laughs> uh, so our word of the day is... Vitreous. Vitreous. And in the text, it says, In the center of a pedestal sat a glistening, round-topped cylinder, black and vitreous. Right. <laughs> what does it mean? Vitreous means like glass in appearance or in physical property. Aha. All right. Learn something new every day. Yeah, it's a nice cool word. It has uh, a yes. slimy sound as well. It does. Somehow. It sounds very kind of Lovecraftian. Right. Well, you had heard it on the other soundboard. Vitreous humor is the jelly that's inside your eyeball. So there you go. Ah, yeah. right. Hey. <laughs> All right. So, yes, we've got these six stories here in The Dying Earth. Uh, the first of them is Turgen of Mir, which is about a person named – about a magician named Turgen who uh, really wants to create life in, in these vats – but he has just been unable to. Like the life he's creating is just kind of frail and feeble and falls apart. So he ends up seeking out Pandalum, this great wizard who lives in another dimension, who knows all of the spells that are that are that are left to mankind's memory, which are a mere hundred or so out of yeah th- thousands yeah, that were created thousands in the past. Thousands, thousands, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And now only a few more than a hundred remain. Okay. So he travels to him to learn how to create life. And that's right. the first story. And that's where he ends up meeting Tesseis, who uh, was one of um, Pandalum's actually failed creations. Uh, or maybe maybe failed is a har- harsh word for Tesseis. Flawed. Flawed. Mm. Fallen creations. A fallen creation. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, everything that she sees is... Hideous and ugly and violent to her eyes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you had mentioned, Gavin, this was a... Um, sort of major influence on the whole Vivimancer class when you created this uh, the in Theorems of Thaumaturgy and then later on in Complete Vivimancer, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the story Turjan of Mir, like the, I don't know, just the first page, when I, when I read this book the first time, just the first page, I was like, oh my God, that is amazing. Like just yes. so much happens in the first page. You know, you're presented with this whole scene of him like uh, sitting in front of his failed creation, which dies. Um, and then he's kind of ruining that he can't, you know, he, he hasn't got this final key to create life and then goes up to his rooftop and tries to think what to do. And then remembers his master telling him about Pandaloom. 
And that's all that's all in like the first page or something. I love this story so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love this whole book collection in general. Like the Dying Earth is just so incredibly imaginative and mm-hmm. whimsical and a beautiful set of stories. And it's really unlike anything that we have read in the appendix and up to date. And also it's surprising to me that this is from nineteen fifty. Right. Because it seems like it's so in line with kind of like the kind of psychedelic craziness of like kind of the late 60s and a lot of the stuff that we have in the 70s. It seems like it's very seminal work. And and Gavin, how did you, um, were you introduced to this work or you came out on your, uh, in your own? How did you come to Jack Vance? I think, I think it must have been through the online role playing scene, actually Google Plus or blogs or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not a book that I knew of kind of growing up. And I, I seem to remember not even really particularly reading the, you know, looking at the Appendix N in the DMG. And that would, would have been another way of coming across it. But I, I think, yeah, just, just talking to people online, I came across this as a, like a classic influence of the whole fantasy and D&D thing. So uh, anything more to say about Turgeon or shall we list the, list the rest of the stories? In, yeah, uh, so I guess on. just kind of quickly going through the synopsis then. So yeah, Turgeon of Mir, uh, he goes on a, on a quest for Pandalum and uh, comes back and is able to get the secrets to create life. The second story is uh, Missourian the Magician. And Missourian the Magician is just kind of hanging out in his home when suddenly uh, Tisais who is the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Tissane, Tissane, Tissane. Her, her, her sister, right. uh, yeah, is now on Earth. Turgeon, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. Uh, he suddenly sees this beautiful woman, and he decides that he must do everything he can to possess her, right. uh, which, you know, we all know what that means. Right. <laughs> and uh, he goes on a, uh, on a long journey trying to capture this beautiful woman. Right. And then and the in third, fact, we find out that in fact he had actually captured uh, Turjan. Yes, and was using mm-hmm. torturing Turjan. Had miniaturized him and put him in a pit with a baby, a uh, little box with a baby <laughs> dragon, and he had to run around the corners, keep hiding from the mini dragon. Uh, yes, because he was trying to get his secrets on the creation of life. Right, exactly. Uh, but the good news is, in the end, Tassane does, uh, does destroy uh, Mazurian and and save her her companion and. Mentor, I guess, yes. creator, among all these other things. I mean, it's actually interesting that she doesn't actually destroy him. It's, it's almost more happenstance, isn't it? That he's chasing, chasing, chasing after her, eventually runs out of spells. Yes. Because he can only have like four or five in his mind. Um, uh-huh. She's she's like at her wit's end, you know, almost being caught by him. And then just by randomness, he gets attacked by some other creature. <laughs> so it, it's That's not actually true. that she defeats him kind of thing, which is an interesting <laughs> twist, I think. It's right. almost that he catches her. You know? Right. She keeps on trying to evade him and, and mm. throws the two spells that she had. It's almost the, if I, if you could put yourself in the mind of the game master, giving, uh, and if a Missourian was a player character, giving themselves enough room to hang themselves. In, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been fine if he just stayed at home. (laughs) The third story is probably my favorite of the six, and that's Tissais. And uh, in this story, Tissais, she's the the flawed creation. She convinces Pandalum to let her come to Earth uh, because she's determined to find beauty because she's unable to do so. But 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 her sister, isn't it? Her, her sister convinces her she can find it on Earth. Yeah, right at the end of the first story. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So in this story, she decides to go to Earth 
And the first the first thing she stumbles upon is uh, Lyanne the Wayfarer, who's torturing this couple. And because everything is ugly and hideous to her, she can't quite tell if like is the thing that she's seeing really a truly awful thing, or is, yeah, this, or is this beauty a beautiful yeah. thing, or is right. this just like a normal? She has no idea how to even interpret what she's looking yeah. at right now. And then she ends up kind of going on this adventure where she ends up meeting a guy named Atar. And it's Atar. hardly scarred, yeah. cursed by a, a witch. Yes, right. he's got the right. face of a demon, yeah. a hideous, hideous face of a demon. He was uh, cursed by Javan, the witch. And so Tasseis and Atar go to this major demon orgy where Javan is uh, going to be there. And they're trying to get her to give him his face back. And then what ends up happening there is they end up making her go on a journey with them to um oh i'm forgetting this now <laughs> yeah. i actually do have to say that the the to me almost the most least important element of the dying earth stories is the actual plot yeah it's the, the, the language <laughs> the characterization the mood that's set yeah and so in some cases when you try to describe the dying earth just merely in terms of plot people are like uh, uh okay that, that doesn't mean anything to me right and it's really yeah, just exactly. like it's just yes yeah yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, so maybe going through the plots of each and every one may not actually be the best use of our time. Right. So there, there are, but there are six stories, and we've discussed uh, kind of quickly what goes on in the first three. Okay. The fourth one is focused on Lyanne the Wayfarer, who is this completely sociopathic psychopath. Right. Player character. Basically. Player character. <laughs> uh, the Anti-hero. fifth one is the story of Ulandor. And Ulandor is basically a Gamma World or Mutant Crawl Classics adventure in the form of 1950s fiction, because uh, it's this guy who goes to this ancient city uh, and ends up in, in the end flying away in a in a flying car. In a flying car <laughs> after this like insane artificial intelligence right. like is trying to murder the whole city, right. claiming that it's a god of some sort. Uh, basically, that's that yeah. a real twist, isn't it? I find that story after the first four, which have oh, a kind yeah. of similar feeling and a sort of continuity. Suddenly, it goes completely sci-fi. Yeah, and also in the first four, you have characters who you've who you've seen at least referenced in previous ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, but in the fifth one, there is there's a there's a tenuous connection because yeah. Ulandor is the nephew of Candive the Golden. Yeah. <laughs> and Candive the Golden is who we stole the amulet from, right? So that uh, Turjan could get his secrets from Pandalum, right? So there is a, there is a tentative connection there. Yeah, there's a thread going through them. Yeah, and in that one, that's where he goes to meet the curator. Right, and that's Gial is the one who is uh, uh, incurably curious, right? And and his father is is basically annoyed and sends him out into the world. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any connection in that one? I forget if that has this similar like thread to one of the others. I don't think it does. Uh, I don't recall. Uh, It's been a a few months since I read it, Uh, so you know, shame on me. well, but, that is one thing that is tricky about the way that we're recording this yeah. this podcast is, you know, at some point we're going to get to the point where the episode, the, the books that we're discussing are caught up with the books that we're actually reading. But right now, as we're kind of doing these early episodes, we are going over books that we read a few months ago at this point. So yeah. it, it is a little bit trickier. Right. In fact, Gavin is probably the most current. So again, shame on us. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't read the last story this week. Right. So <laughs> I can't comment on that one. <laughs> I do have to say that... Um, my understanding is that Vance 
this is Vance's first published work, and that these stories are composed over a period of time. So then, therefore, it makes sense that they're not completely mm. um, interlocked. Um, and, you know, then he just had a, enough stories to sort of basically finally put out a volume. In fact, it's a very small, weird publishing yeah. house, Hillman Periodicals. Not, it wasn't one of the major science fiction publishing houses, as far as I know, at that point. Okay. Um, so these, these stories weren't published in a periodical first or anything like that? Not that I can tell, but okay, let me right. uh, let, let me not. I was make, kind of guessing they were because a lot of the kind of early pulp and fantasy stories were, weren't they? You know, they were in weird tales or something like that first, and then compiled into books. Yeah, my understanding is that um, he had ended up being a merchant seaman in the mm. um, World War Two and was had a lot of spare time when he was on the ship and <laughs> right. just penciling away and. Um, yeah. Again, I'm sure if I'm wrong, we'll hear from it. We'll hear about it from uh, <laughs> all the people who will correct us, and we welcome it, I guess. Sure. <laughs> so, Gavin, of the six stories, which one is your favorite? I think, actually, I would say the first one. I just find yeah. it so iconic. You know, this tale of a magician who's, like, looking back to the millions, billions of years of history of scientists and magicians before him, seeing, you know, seeing clearly the, like, absolute limits of his knowledge in comparison to what's come before and then mm-hmm. going on this kind of quite desperate mission to try and increase his knowledge by visiting this pandaloom whom he knows nothing about and he has to yeah. call the violent cloud to get there which is like kind of a pretty risky sounding way of interdimensional transport i guess <laughs> <laughs> so just throwing himself into the unknown you know and it actually works out great for him which is kind of interesting I like that the dying earth is already quite strange, and then we end up in this mm. pocket dimension that's even stranger, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, with the, yeah. the shifting colored skies. unexplained where this is, what it is, you know. Yeah. doesn't relate to anything else in the story somehow, this, uh, what's it called? The world where Pandaloom lives? Uh, Embellion? Yep. Yeah, right. Uh, and Hoy, what is your favorite of the six? Um, good question. I kind of like uh, Leanne. I mean, I like them all. Uh, I like Leanne the Wayfarer, but that may be because it reminds me actually of a Lord Dunsany story, okay. which is um, the distressing tale of Thangorbrin the Jeweler. And so that's sort of the prototypical, one of the prototypical thief stories. Very much uh, tune, tune the unavoidable is such a sort of compelling monster. Oh, yeah. Um, you never great. get to sense what it is. Yeah. 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 Um, that's an amazing ending, isn't it? That one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then sort of the tune hangs the eyeballs of the various, uh, makes a cloak out of the eyeballs of the various people who've tried to steal from him. Um, And in fact, there is some quite disturbing sort of borderline horror imagery throughout all the stories. And the beauty beauty and the horror sort of just smoothly blend into Mm. each other, which is a real feat in in my uh, estimation in terms of the writing. Also, the the kind of complete amorality of a lot of the main characters you know that mm-hmm. when you you kind of when you're reading it you get into the flow of what's happening but then when you take a step back you're like what oh my god what is what is happening what is this person doing <laughs> no doubt and also i i just think kind of the the way that vance deals with morality in dying earth it's just really interesting too because like one of the most sympathetic characters i think in the entire book is to yeah. and, and here here she is somebody who's just murdering everything that she can see initially because yeah. it's also <laughs> hideous to her and so offensive yeah. that she just wants it dead right but then we get to a place where like we've got this really sensitive moment with um Atar. yeah with her and Atar, where she realizes that she loves Atar. 
And he says, how can you love me if you hate everything that you see? Mm -hmm. And she says something along the lines of like, well, I hate you in the way that I hate everything that I see, but I love you in the way that I, I've, I've not felt for anything else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's also another good uh, sort of metaphor for the creative process. You know, I, I, you know, the few times I've tried to do stuff, I've always like, oh, I always find something to hate and something to love about what I'm doing anyway. Right. I don't know how you feel uh, about when yeah. you're writing or how you do it when, you know, when you're doing your work, Gavin. So Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's like... Even when something is finished, you look back on it a year later and you're like, ah, oh, really? Why did I write that? Or shouldn't I have done that instead? <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's just how it is, I guess. I felt that, that's something I found quite interesting, actually, that story with this like redemption, you know, that she, she starts off as this kind of unknowingly completely evil character. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, she, she reaches this kind of point where she understands what she was doing and changes her ways kind of thing. She does, because in the end of that story, they go off to see that ancient unnamed god to get their justice. And in doing so, that, that god gives gives her the ability to, I think, see the world as right. it is. As it yeah. is right. And, and restores the face the to... Back, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then gives the witch kind of her comeuppance. Right. Yeah. So is it, I, I found that very interesting that you've got, like, on the one hand, very amoral characters... But then some of the stories have this overall feeling of like redemption or of good winning out in the end somehow. Yeah, because even with because uh, without a doubt, the the most troubling person in the story in, in the set of stories is Lan the the Wayfarer, and he's also the yeah. only one who uh, really comes to like a, a truly terrible end. We don't even yeah, know exactly, exactly. what he happens to him. We just know it's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he is he is charming. Sort of, but not in the way that Kugel will be or Kujul will be in the later mm. stories, you know. Sure. You know. And uh, yes, Kujul is completely amoral, and we'll talk about that in uh, when episode. we get to that episode. But he's he's still nowhere near as bad as Lyanne, though. Right. Lyanne is yeah. <laughs> straight up yes, straight up evil. He's not he's he's not presented, I think, in any situation as a character for identification. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah, there's no there's no humanity in right. him, there's no empathy in right. him. And I think also in Missourian is quite evil, or or at least sort of. Again, That's true. Um, yeah, yeah I was going to say see a lot he's through, the other one. Yeah, yeah. you do see through he's his eyes. very torturing and capturing yeah. Turjan, yeah. and yeah. in the end gets his comeuppance as well. Yeah, sort right, of right, random, yeah, but. right. And you do see through his eyes in that story, but I don't feel that again. You are meant to, you know, identify with him. In that sure. Story, yeah. In that, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because you've already met Turjan previously, so you're kind of identifying more with him. I think. Yes. Right. And occasionally you get these very kind of rapey stories in the appendix end where like, you know, here's Missouri and he sees this woman. He like wants her. So he like goes to this great he like he's running around just like trying to capture her. Yeah, it's kind of a theme, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but he's also clearly not our protagonist here. We, yeah. We're not rooting for him. But then you get like a Conan story like Frost Giant's Daughter uh -huh. where, you know, he's like dying in the battlefield. And then suddenly he sees the Frost Giant's Daughter run through the snow half naked. And now he's like revitalized because he must <laughs> he must have her. So he like leaps up and starts running after her to like possess her. And, uh -huh. uh, and he actually is our, our, our protagonist in that story. So right. I, I am glad that at least like our the, the story where we were, you know, the entire story uh, hinges on him wanting to basically kidnap and rape this woman. At least that's not the character we're supposed to be rooting for in that situation. Yeah. yeah. Same with Leia and the Wayfarer, isn't it? Like he sees this witch and he must have her. 
And then she sends him on this like weird challenging quest, which eventually is a trap and kills him. Right. Yeah, that's right. The whole reason he's on the quest is because she says, I will not I will not take you as my lover until you have served me in some way. (laughs) Basically just completely strings him along. Right. (laughs) Right, right. And as you said, the same way that um, we saw that Turjan was introduced and so that we know that Turjan we should still be rooting for in the second story, Leanne is introduced in Sias, and we know he's just horrible in that story Mm. so that we don't... Yeah, right. It's already been set up. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. Yeah. And gender in The Dying Earth is just kind of interesting because on one hand, I feel like we have some very interesting and complex female characters, especially with like Tasseis. Uh, but mm. on another hand, all of the powerful wizards are all dudes. Right. Right. Well, we don't know exactly how powerful, I guess, the witches are, in a sense. Uh, you know, they're not the viewpoint characters. So. Yeah. The the impression is not that there are equally powerful women magicians right. in the world, at least from my reading of it. Mm. Yeah. That comes up later in the Dying Earth series as well, doesn't it? That, um, you know, you get to this ultra-powerful cabal of wizards and they're all men. And I, th- yeah. I think there's a woman character that they kind of hate and are battling against isn't there later on yeah yeah and i I believe those were written in the 80s right um i believe yes rialto the marvelous and Mm. uh, whatever the 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 other book were were written yeah so that's much much later or at least published in the 80s so certainly late 70s early 80s post post technically the appendix and era if we're cutting it off at the Uh. um publication of the first edition uh, dungeon master's guide sure so to speak (laughs) So obviously when you talk about uh, Jack Vance and the Dying Earth series and you talk about Dungeons and Dragons, the very clear connection here is the magic system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's actually interesting to me, I'll go back to the magic system, that they didn't take more of like the creatures or the setting, maybe mm-hmm. for Gamma World yeah. or something like that, but in the sense that the Fafford and Grey Mouser stuff, they brought in a whole chapter into deities and demigods or you know uh, the, the Elric books, but that they didn't have actually a Dying Earth sort of supplement so to speak you know? sure we don't have deodons and twick men and pelgrains right. in our in yeah. any version of our monster manual that i'm aware of right. and it's right. a it's a fascinating and amazing world isn't it with a lot of amazing creatures described so yeah it's quite an omission that they didn't bring that in and one of the things that i think is kind of interesting about these creatures too is it, i don't believe it's ever actually said but somehow it seems to be implied in the fiction that all of these monsters were at least at one point people, uh, or creations, or like creations. The, yeah. the Deodans were supposed to be yeah. part Wolverine, uh, part human, yeah, part something else. Absolutely, right. but like yeah. Pelgrains are not just like a creature that naturally evolved that are now yeah. flying. Like they yeah. are at least part person or created uh, by people. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I guess we're we're our own worst enemies. I guess. Uh. <laughs> So in terms of, um, we're talking about the magic system. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we have spelled like the excellent prismatic spray that are in. Um, in the player's handbook and maybe even earlier. Oh, sure. And yeah. the names of these spells are fantastic. Cause yeah. I was, I was writing yeah. down some of the names of the spells and we've got call of the violent cloud, which Gavin mentioned earlier, the excellent prismatic spray, which yeah. Hoy just referred to. There's also Fandel's mantle of strength of stealth, uh, the yeah. spell of the slow hour, Phalagen's second hypnotic spell, Fandel's gyrator, the charm of untiring nourishment, the spell of the omnipotent sphere and Vandal's critique of the chill. 
to name a few. Uh, amazing names. Yeah. Sorry, that's <laughs> terrific. I, I especially like uh, Fandel's gyrator. Is that the one that he kills the Diodand with? That's when he spins the Diodand. Yeah, the, yeah. Like, so first yeah, he just kind of like lifts yeah. the Diodand up, and yeah. he's like shaking him. And then when he finally gets the answer he wants, he just like spins him around so fast his head just pops off, and there's like gore <laughs> and blood and viscera flying everywhere. Yeah. What level spell would that be? I wondered. <laughs> exactly. <It's good. laughs> I don't know. It's kind of, these spells are odd, actually, aren't they? In D and D terms, like they so- sometimes have quite a simple effect, but then it can be used for really, really devastating things like that. Now, I notice I'm just looking at the spell list in uh, Complete Vivamancer, there, Gavin, and the spells themselves are quite evocative and weird, but the names are a little bit more straightforward. Is that just for yeah. the ease of gaming in terms of looking them up and that kind of stuff like that? And yeah, sort of under- I mean, yeah. I guess, I guess, in terms of the names, I probably just went for names in the same vein as you would see in the standard magic user spell lists. So not not so kind of flowery and evocative as the Jack Vance names. Sure, yeah, because sure. I feel like we don't really see those kinds of names and spell descriptions until Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Because that's when you start to get like, what is it, Oda Luke's magical... Yeah, and the Big Beast Fist. And, yeah, uh, yeah. That's all very AD&D. Wizard. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, actually, let me ask you, Gavin, why, uh, why specifically Labyrinth Lord? Was that because of your beginning with BX and that was what was a, the, the rule set that was available at the time when you were working on it? Yeah, I'm not sure how I came across Labyrinth Lord, actually. I, I had a break from gaming in my 20s and then came back to it later um, and was actually trying newer rule sets. Like I played D&D 4 for a short time and then things like True 20, Savage World, stuff like that. A uh, tiny bit of Pathfinder. And eventually came, you know, it became clear to me that I wanted something that was more like what I was playing earlier. Yeah, I can't remember how I came across Labyrinth Lord, but yeah, it must it must have been because of that connection. Yeah, that was very similar to the rules that I was playing as a kid. And for the listeners who are not familiar, Labyrinth Lord is basically a restatement of the Cook and Wolve basic and expert rules um, and cleaned up a little bit and... Uh, specifically because those rules were not in print at the time, and so people wanted to be able to use a very similar rule set to maybe run old adventures and to create new adventures. Sure. And also, just to kind of, um, in case people who are listening don't know why Dungeons & Dragons Magic is referred to Vancean Magic, would one of you like to speak to why it's called Vancean Magic and what about the D&D system is Vancean? Sure, I'll throw that at Gavin, because he's written a whole book about magic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean... um... It's as as presented in the books. You have these uh, spells which are written down. You know, you have big tomes with the information about the spells in. The magic user will look at the spell on the page, and it's described even that when when they look at the the writing on the page, the spell itself, the energy is pressing into their mind like it wants to be read and it wants to imprint itself in someone's mind, um, and then it describes you know diff- that there are different kind of levels or kind of power ratings of spells um and that certain certain a wizard of a certain kind of experience can impress a certain number of these spells into his mind and then yeah. when you cast them they're gone until you study them again so mm-hmm. this is basically a, exactly the prototype of the D magic system Absolutely. And uh, do you have any sense as to why Gary may have uh, been drawn to Jack Vance as a uh, foundation for his magic building? I, it's a good question. I would guess maybe because of it's quite easy to balance in terms of the game mechanics. Yes. You know that a lot, a lot of wizards in fantasy fiction seem to be almost all-powerful, 
and really overwhelming the other characters who are along with them. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if, if you have this kind of strict limitation, you can only fit X number of spells in your memory per day, then that automatically gives you this idea of a level progression. You can learn more as you advance mm -hmm. and gives you this kind of balancing factor that, yeah, you can only do a certain number of amazing things per day. So may, uh, ju just guessing, maybe that's that was the appeal of it. Yeah, I would agree with that, Hoy. Uh, I do. I One of the discussions that's been had about that magic system oh, is that the downside is that many of the most interesting spells are at the higher levels. Yeah, and uh, if you play rules as written, sometimes you never get to get to <laughs> yeah, exactly. have a character yeah. to play the most yeah. interesting spells. So I know, for example, that uh, GCC is trying to sort of route around that. I know that James Raji in his latest um, LOTFP supplement was creating mm. spells that are levelless. And, yeah, right. Um, uh, what else? Paolo Greco, is that right? One of the um, one of the other OSR. Oh books. yeah, the Wonder and Wickedness. Right, I think that's levelless as, yeah, as well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, same idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I definitely Raji's new uh, vaginas are magic right. free RPG day supplement. That was th those are all levelless as well. Right, right. Mm. Uh, of course, yeah. that makes a lot more work in terms of being able to create the spells in terms of effect of the spell at each level of the caster if we're still yeah, maintaining scale. a yeah. Right, yeah. scaling the system. So, But mm. I would say that that's even more Vancean than what we're currently working with. And the reason I would say that is, you know, it, it does say in the story that um, <clears throat> that even like the, the, the most powerful and most like learned of all wizards can store up to four of the really strong <laughs> yeah. spells right. in their head uh, or up to six of the lesser spells. Uh, so Which is like nothing in D&D That's D nothing, yeah. Uh, six, six lesser spells is uh, the most you can hold in your brain as like the, the most powerful wizard around. <laughs> yeah. And like that, that that's like a, a third level, that's like a third level wizard. Right. 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 Can right. cast six spells in a day. And um, that's specifically why they all have to have extra charms or magic items. Mm -hmm. But even the magic items sort of wear off in terms of their effect like that. Sure. Missourian's boots and um, yeah. some of the defensive charms that some of the other characters have. So it's not, um, you know, it's not uh, unlimited sort of uh, narrative, narrative-based uh, sure. magic, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And also, nowhere does it really insinuate that even the most powerful of spells do you need to be um, a specific kind of wizard to be able to learn that spell. You know, because with with D and D, like you were saying, the higher level spells, nobody ever gets there. You know, some of these spells are pretty are pretty powerful and my impression is that these are that not all of these are like 17th level wizards here yeah you know these are just people who have devoted their 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 time to magic and once you kind of have the basic understanding as to like how to how to read these symbols and kind of put it into your head you can just do that yeah sure sure this is what i was thinking that actually it seems in a way like the the spell level progression is actually compressed in the Dying Earth stories. Like, you know, in D&D, there's like six or nine spell levels. It doesn't feel like that in Dying Earth, does it? It feels like maybe there's two or three. You yeah. know, he talks about the lesser and the major spells or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe the lesser spells are much more powerful than the first level D&D spells, something like that. Oh, yeah. Because my um, impression is that you don't have a light spell in exactly yeah that, that wouldn't be worthy of uh, a magician i think in that setting yeah exactly yeah not at all like this is really powerful very wild magic right. yeah and it is it is science or technology but it's not science or technology in sort of the mundane sense where i feel like a lot of stuff in sort of generic fantasy vanilla fantasy is basically substitute for 
20th century technology. We want mm. to have this Ren Fair thing, but we don't want to deal with the fact that people have use outhouses or get diseases. So we want to have a <laughs> continual light as opposed to having a flashlight. Yeah. Uh, we want to have, you know, something to create food so they don't just have to eat, you know, moldy cheese and, and you know, rotten meat. Uh. So, um, so that's what they're trying to emulate uh, in a sense. Uh, I'm actually, again, looking at your bo- book here, Gavin, and you came up with, let's see, 90, 110. Well, not all uh, of those spells are new. But uh, well, uh, certainly about 150 spells, uh, not all of which are new, but certainly a good portion of them. That is a lot of work. Um, what was your sort of process for creating these spells? Um, I think for the Vivimancer, it was an idea that once, once I'd hit on it and once I'd kind of written the first few spells, it really just flowed. Like it, it felt like a kind of untapped vein of D and D. You know that there's like a few hints that that kind of magic in the A D and D spell list, like the clone spell, for example, is the main one. You know, it has this vibe of like biological, slightly horrific, like lab-based magic. But there's not not many that have that kind of vibe. And so one, once I'd kind of hit into that, it really went quickly. Um, I, th- I seem to remember the process was, um, first of all, writing just a list of spell names, you know, and then, each, of course, in my mind, I had an imagination of what the spell would do. So then I had this huge list of like 200 different names of spells, and they gradually just went through writing them up. Uh, but it, it was a very quick process. By the way, let me add that my favorite spell so far that I'm looking at on the list here is uh, the ninth level spell, Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's based on the name of some 80s like horror movie, actually, if I remember correctly. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I'd slip that one in there. And did you have to go through an extensive uh, playtesting process with this, or what, what was your you know next stage after you had written the spells? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, the higher level spells, as we were talking about earlier, haven't really been playtested. Like, I had a campaign running where Vivimancers were the only type of magician, just to oh, wow. kind of... To, to like force this to be play tested. That's um, cool. Yeah, it was it was actually a kind of um, cross between Dune and um, Dark Sun kind of setting. So like set in the desert, and um, these magicians were kind of rediscovering the ancient lost arts of this kind of bio sorcery. Um, cool. But you know, of course, as is typical, we didn't get beyond like sixth, seventh level or something like that. Yeah, and I'm joining a, the, this BX game that I joined in. They've been playing together since first level, but I'm mm. a recent edition, and they're all yeah. like eighth and ninth level. So I'm 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 walking in the door as an eighth level Vivimancer, which is <laughs> nice. pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. Cool. One thing that I think you did really well with this book is um, I think you really kind of tapped into the Vancian amorality. And by amorality, I don't mean like that they're like immoral, just like a, like I, I feel like cause the, the, the Vivimancer is in essence the opposite of a necromancer. But uh-huh. it would be really easy to to take the opposite of a necromancer and instead want to turn that into like this really good magician. Yeah, protector who, of life, this kind of thing, yeah. Absolutely, who, you know, is growing flowers and restoring uh-huh. flesh and like, you know, yeah. making things whole and hippie, beautiful. Basically a hippie. Mm, yeah. yeah, maybe, kind of. Yeah. Um, which is, but, which like, is kind of a bit how you can see the AD&D druid or how it's it's often twisted that kind of way I think as like a hippie protector of nature yeah which I think isn't actually accurate but I think that's how it often turns out right certainly what we know of the actual druids well through the Romans obviously so they may probably be slandering them but it's it's quite a bit bloodier (laughs) sure and while the Vivimancer is truly the opposite of the Necromancer they're also a very uh, twisted Mm. lot 
Yeah, I mean, th- this was this was a big part of the idea as well that like to portray them as scientists, you know, above all, yeah. that they they aren't interested in good or evil. They they're purely driven by their desire for knowledge and possibly power, um, mm-hmm. which can be used for good or for evil. But the the school of magic itself is essentially neutral. Um, and it has that kind of cold scientific rationality about it. Mm-hmm. I think as well, I, I like the idea that a necromancer could could be the same way. You know, necromancers have this reputation of being like pure evil. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think as well, you could apply the same logic that they're just scientists researching the kind of realms of death and undeath. And then it's up to them to decide how they use those powers. Right. I mean, I guess you could say that... Uh... Baron Frankenstein is somewhere kind of splits the difference between a necromancer and a yeah. necromancer. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting, yeah. 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 Or he dual class, so to speak. <laughs> and one thing that's interesting about going back to the Appendix N is the, the, the word necromancer is thrown around a lot. Right. But it never, ever, ever means, like, or at least my experience, it has not meant a wizard who is experimenting in undeath. It just yeah. means, like, an evil wizard uh. or, you know, somebody who's using black magic. Uh, so it, it's one thing that it is interesting how D&D has become so self-referential that now when we hear the word necromancer, we all mm. instantly understand and know what it means, even though it really has no basis on what it meant in 40 years ago. Yeah, right. This, this is one thing I'm especially interested in, actually, kind of cutting underneath those, like, uh, D&D tropes. Yes. You know, use, using the same game, the same core of the game, but introducing completely new elements, like the Vivimancer doesn't have any history in D&D. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, do, I just find the kind of D&D tropes a bit boring, you know, generally, like the orcs and goblins and, like, necromancers must be evil, this kind of stuff, so... And that's one thing that's very interesting about Dying Earth, I think, is that, you know, a lot of those kind of fantasy tropes that we think of as being very kind of D&D and very kind of like Tolkien, you don't really see a lot of that in Dying Earth. Mm. Dying Earth really does yeah. kind of seem to be very much its own thing. However, you also have people who do, I think, fit really well into Dungeons and Dragons and some of the, like the character classes, for example. Like Leanne, there's a moment where he's trying to go after, uh, where, where at one point he like hides in the shadows. Like right. it says that like- Yeah, he exactly. Just, he melts into the shadow somewhere. Right. Yeah. 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 So, like, there's very much, like, a prototypical thief move thief right there. or maybe even an assassin in his case. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, later on when we read the uh, the, the Kugel stories in uh, Eyes of the Overworld, you can see, again, some more of the things like the thief being able to use magic items and scrolls. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, part- partially random, but, yeah. Right. Yeah, Leanne has his little magic ring. Oh, right, right. Yeah. His little bronze magic ring. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing, actually. It, seem, it seems to me like you've got two types of character. You've got a wizard who's the like science research mathematics guy just living in his castle doing his research. And then you've got the kind of adventurer type who is like this weird mishmash of like thief, bit fightery, bit wizardy, kind of a jack of all trades in a way. And those seem to be the two types in the Dying Earth stories. So the the applied science guy, as opposed to yeah. the uh, theoretical, <laughs> exactly, <yeah. laughs> theoretical science. But, and yeah. we encounter that a lot with our appendix and protagonists, and that like they're very rarely just a fighting man, or very rarely mm. just a thief. You know, right. they're they're often an amalgamation of these things. And if you wanted to take these characters and turn them into uh, into a Dungeons and Dragons character, you have to use multi classing to even make mm. it work. And even then, oftentimes it doesn't quite 
do it. Right. I remember seeing in one AD&D book a kind of uh, a kind of interpretation of I think it was um, Fafford and Grey Mauser as AD&D characters, uh-huh. and they were both like these crazy like fifth level ranger and an eighth level thief and a tenth level fighter, all this like weird mishmash. Right. A bar. Which kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of yeah. shows that it doesn't the classes as defined don't actually really fit that well with the mm-hmm. sort of archetypes from the fiction. Right. Although conversely, you have people who are arguing that you actually have too many classes. For example, if, if they go from OD&D and say, oh, well, you shouldn't really have the cleric class because there's no right. precedent for <laughs> yeah. that in the fiction. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, aren't all adventurous thieves? Do you really need a thief class? Because yeah. the thief uh, didn't show up until. Uh, yeah. But obviously, I think the original D&D was more freeform. And, uh, you know, by the time we get to AD&D or the later, you know, BX systems, they had to be a little more codified for sort of a, a larger market. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. And then we also have quite a few magical items in right. this story as well. We've got that bronze ring. We have our expansible egg, which is, I think is one of the cooler magical items. Are there anything that jump out at you, Gavin, in the it's sort of the magic items or, or misunderstood technology in the story? Yeah, I mean, I guess two that I remember especially. One is the uh, Lacodel's Rune. I just love the name of that, you know, this this amulet that Turgen has strapped on his wrist and, like, just nullifies all magic. Yes. Extremely powerful. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the other one is this ring, yeah, that um, Liane finds, which he discovers he can put over his head down over his whole body and down to his feet and it puts him in this <laughs> parallel like dimensional space where there's nothing so he thinks he can hide there <laughs> that is i don't know that's just such an amazing idea and like such a creative use of this and the way he discovers and experiments to discover how he can use this magic and like when i was a kid and i would look through like the magic items in the back of like the the dungeon master's guide and things like that i was always really excited about like the wondrous items section yeah mm-hmm. like just like a plus one sword and like a, adding like a goblin's bane onto it or something uh-huh. like that kind of stuff wasn't very exciting to me yeah, the really fun stuff was yeah. yeah it's the really unique items and i uh-huh. feel like the kind of magic items you see in dying earth all kind of fall into that like very unique very specific very yeah. kind of bizarre mm-hmm. and highly flavorful magic right yeah and, yeah. and they don't almost they're sort of misunderstood misapplied um they're definitely uh, almost a little bit surreal in terms of my uh a yeah. lot of and they almost to me sometimes have a sort of a, a sort of a looney bro- a looney tunes effect yeah sort of like the <laughs> right. uh the, the duck amuck cartoon that really reminds me a lot of times you know and especially yeah. later again later on when you go to sort of like the Coog- the kugel stories but this mm. a, i want to say also there's a lot of comedy in these stories it's very dry wit a lot of times but yeah. there's a lot of comedy i think and then um if it wasn't like a, bit, a bit i remember actually that's yeah. really funny is the um liane when he's got this magic ring he finds himself in this tavern full of like wannabe wizards you get the impression they're basically charlatans but each yeah. of these guys has got some like amazing wondrous item that they're showing off to each other um then eventually he stands up and shows off his uh, magic ring that makes him disappear waits a few minutes when he comes out they're all gone <laughs> 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 like completely lost interest in the whole thing. <laughs> 
and he's rather crestfallen. I got the feeling <laughs> that was a uh, that's like the uh, you know the player who goes, "Let me tell you about my player character." <laughs> <laughs> Turns around, all the other gamers. Are <laughs> okay, so Gavin, now in uh, Dying Earth, we also have a lot of technology that's used in here. Mm-hmm. You know, in our in the and especially in the last few stories, which you didn't get a chance to reread, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But you know, we've we've got the flying car. Uh, in the final story in the Museum of Man, like they walk in and like the the particles in the air light up, just kind of right. uh, brightening up the room. Yeah, and like nanotechnology or something. Yeah. And I'm curious, how do you feel about using that kind of stuff in your Dungeons and Dragons games? It depends on the campaign, of course. I mean, the, the campaign I talked about earlier with the Vivimancers um, and the kind of Dark Sun kind of vibe. That that definitely had this background that there was some like ancient technology that had been lost, but that there were some you know relics of this day, um, which were now called magical items, but actually were at least partly technological in their origin. So I'm really into that kind of vibe. Um, honestly, I've never played a full on like sci-fi kind of campaign. Um, I, I would be interested to play it more specifically like Dying Earth kind of campaign, though, where there's explicitly this background of like lost technology. Yeah, because I think there's something very attractive about the time prior to our hard line in the sand between science mm. fiction and fantasy, when yeah. you can hop into your spacecraft and get off on a planet and find a castle there with a sorcerer in it. Uh, you know, yeah. like there's something very exciting and fun about that. Yeah. But now we have, we have such a clear distinction between the two that I, I feel like we, we lose something by, by forcing these two into very different silos. Yeah. I think this is what dungeon crawl classics is really kind of going for as well, isn't it? This like anything goes freewheeling kind of approach. Absolutely. Now, have you played much DCC? No, I've got the book, but I've never actually got a chance to play it. I've got the dice as well, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the dice are great. It's a, it's a bit too complicated a system for me to grasp immediately and kind of want to play it. You know, I'm really happy with my BX. So well, if you ever come to, to the States, I will be happy to run DCC for you. Okay, cool. Awesome. I, I run it every other week usually. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, excellent. Now, Gavin, are you normally a game master or do you play on both sides of the fence, so to speak, as a player and a, a game master? Yeah, almost always a game master. Um, yeah. My experience of being a player is like 5% or less than my kind of total gaming experience. I guess I just love the kind of world building and being able to create the kind of atmosphere and portray that to other people. Right. Right. And, um, do you tend to sort of, uh, have your world sort of become emergent in play? I mean, certainly you have a seed of an idea of the mood and the tone that you want to mm-hmm. set, but how much to that, uh, what extent is you creating the, the world in play as opposed to sitting down and, and, you know, writing this all up in advance? I guess actually it's not, it's not the cool thing to say, but, normally normally my stuff is more kind of pre-planned pre pre-created kind of thing i mean i love i love the idea of this kind of emergent play but in my experience for me that's not so much how it happens like i'll have a very kind of i have to limit myself actually in the kind of broadness of my ideas of a campaign setting because otherwise you get into like oh okay first of all i'll sit down and i'll detail the hundred planes of existence then i'll get down to one planet and the, you know it's just too much so i have to re-rein that in 
That's one thing that I like a lot about Dungeon Crawl Classics and Dungeon World. Because in Dungeon mm. Crawl Classics, they always say, like, start really small. You know, yeah. your people haven't traveled more than two, 20 miles from their home village. They hardly right, yeah, know what's on the other side of that yeah. hill. Uh. Yeah, so... Like, don't worry about creating the yeah. entire history of your pantheon uh. <laughs> uh, and how that's related to like the ge- to, like to the like the geological uh, <laughs> formations of your continents. Like yeah. that, that stuff doesn't matter yet. You're you're a zero level character. Just like worry about the yeah. town and the surrounding yeah. lands. And I like how Dungeon World has the idea of like draw maps but leave blanks. Mm. You know, like there's whole right. areas that right. like don't even plan and like let that kind of right. be filled out by what happens yeah, yeah, in the gameplay. Uh, here, yeah. And here I think be, those two things dragons. together. What's that? Here be dragons off the edge of the Yes, map. here be dragons. Yeah. Do you Actually, guys have have experience of playing in that way? Because I love the idea of it, but for me, it never seems to happen like that. I my experience is that I it's it's important for me not to just like dive into that 100%. Like, I don't need to just show up and be like, all right, guys, we're going to totally improv this today. Uh, but um, but to kind of give myself a little, pr- like, permission here and there to kind of go mm. off uh, go off script. So if, my, if, my, if I discover my players want to go in a different direction that I'm not really prepared for at all, mm. then I just continue to act as though I am prepared for that aspect yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah. And, uh, or Who's also, to know the difference? <laughs> yeah, or to let them... Um, here, here's a good example. So... I was playing in a fifth edition game maybe about uh, two years ago that I was mm. running uh, before I had come back to DCC as my primary game. And in that adventure, my players uh, were trying to figure out who had committed this murder. And at one point they figured it out. But what was funny is like who they figured out wasn't the person who I had thought had committed the murder. <laughs> but they were convinced they had figured out who the murderer was and yeah. were really excited about it. And they're like, whoa, I can't believe like that was the person who did it. <laughs> and like I just like rolled with it. Like they were right. having such a, they were so convinced that they had figured yeah. it out that I I changed the story in my right. head, like on the spot and made it be that person because I could tell it was gonna be really fun for them. Yeah. And and we just and kind what of like they'd let come the, up with was better than what you'd had in mind even maybe absolutely and because i didn't say anything <laughs> about it too they're also like totally impressed that i had this like brilliant idea <laughs> like, yeah i, I know i'm brilliant <laughs> uh, i would have to say that my inclinations are a little bit more in line with yours gavin although i haven't game mastered much recently mm. and that's maybe because uh you know we as um sort of imaginative people spend a lot of time in our heads and so we have this sort of platonic mm. idea of this creation leaping out and everyone being yeah. you know you know falling in love with it and then realizing <laughs> that you know uh because it's all theater of the mind that you know no matter what we describe it's not exactly 100 percent that what yeah, they see everyone else has their own imagination yeah right yeah yeah absolutely and i think that's a great note for us to wrap up on uh so gavin is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about projects that you're working on or or anything you would like to plug right now um yeah i mean one one thing i'm just finishing up at the moment is um as i said i love the bx rule set i'm i've just finished writing a um summary of the rules so like a reference for use at the table so I know I notice that I, I use Labyrinth Lord at the moment as my kind of core rules, but the books are very written in a very sort of sprawling way, and it's not. If I ever need to look up a rule during a game, no chance. You know, I, <laughs> I just don't bother. Um, so I, I've always wanted something that's a lot more concise and a lot easier to reference. So this this is a project that I've just finished. So it's a restatement in a simpler kind of more concise way of the BX rules. And what is it called? Uh, basic expert core rules very evocative name 
<laughs> I, was, I was wondering about giving it some sort of fancy name, but I thought, well, no, just call it what it is. I mean, and the goal is to have this on uh, all the va- major uh, online vendors like RPG Now. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. RPG Now. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the show, Gavin. Yeah, cool. It was great. Thanks for having me on. And for those who um, will be uh, staying with us, our next two books will be The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien and then Edgar Edgar Rice Burroughs at the Earth's Core. So uh, please do us a favor. If you like our show, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help people find us. You can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com if you have uh, comments or questions. We will read all your communications. Um, And we now have a Twitter handle, Jeff. What is that Twitter handle? Our brand new Twitter handle is at appendix underscore n. At appendix underscore n. All right. Thank you, Gavin, so much for being on with us today. Yes, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Maybe we can have you back. Maybe we can have you back in the future. Yeah, definitely. It'll be fun. All right. Anything else, Jeff? I think that's it. Okay, everybody. Read on. See you in the stacks.